My global IQ is 109. Hi, everyone, and welcome to what will surely be an enjoyable and important discussion with Secretary Robert Gates on American foreign policy. I'm Jim Falk, the president of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Dr. Gates has been a valued friend of our World Affairs Council for a number of years, and I know as well that he has been a stalwart supporter of World Affairs Councils across the country because he recognized that we represent an interested, informed citizens about foreign policy. We're especially grateful that Dr. Gates agreed to join us just two days after the publication of his remarkable book, Exercise of Power, which surely will be soon at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. You know, each December, uh, I'm presumptuous enough to send out to our members uh, my top 10 books. And I have to say that now, midway through 2000, I know which book is firmly at the top of my list. Now, knowing that you are indeed eager, just like I am, to begin the conversation, my introduction of Dr. Gates' uh, remarkable career will be abbreviated to the extreme. In fact, knowing this audience, I suspect that you could recite his resume pretty quickly. But let me just say that Dr. Gates did serve as Secretary of Defense under President George W. Bush and Barack Obama. He began his career as an officer in the U.S. Air Force, and from there he was recruited by the CIA, and he later became director of the CIA during the administration of George H.W. Bush. He was a member of the National Security Council uh, for four administrations, and believe this, he worked under eight presidents, uh, representing both political parties. Now, my son and son-in-law are alumni of Texas A&M University, so I have to highlight that Dr. Gates was president of Texas A&M from 2002 to 2006, and he's current, currently chancellor of the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg. Dr. Gates, great to be with you. Thank you again so much. Thanks for having me, Jim. So, a central theme of your book is truly the failure of our country to effectively use um, our non-military assets. And as you say, you call this um, a remarkable symphony of power and that we have drifted over the recent years uh, uh, really to using our military might as, as the first option. What do you think led us to neglect what really did work and enabled us to win the Cold War? I think that it really began right after the end of the Cold War and and believing that we were invincible and that uh, we sort of stood atop the mountain, uh, we began taking apart or weakening uh, really all of the elements of national power, the instruments of national power that had contributed so much to victory in the Cold War. You know, people haven't, I think, thought enough about the fact that while the Cold War with the Soviets took place against the greatest arms buildup in the history of the world, there was actually never a direct military conflict between the two countries. And over the whole course of the Cold War, somewhere between 50 and 150 Americans were probably killed by the Soviets in one way or another. What happened in the, in, in the background, since everybody knew the, the catastrophic consequences of a military clash, the conflict really took place using non-military instruments of power. Now, part of that was the use of surrogates, but, but a big part of it was technology, 
economic tools such as sanctions, such as uh, technology transfer limitations, strategic communications played a huge part in it. Our, the Voice of America, Radio Free uh, Europe, Radio Liberty, uh, all the covert things that CIA did to smuggle books and magazines and cassettes into the Soviet Union about freedom. Uh, the use of religion, the use of nationalism, the use of cyber, the use of covert action. Uh, we had this whole array of tools that we used and they were all robust. I mean, um, the USIA, US Information Agency, in pre and under President Eisenhower and President Kennedy, especially when Edward R. Murrow headed it, mm -hmm. uh, under President Reagan, when Charlie Wick headed it, was an incredible uh, force multiplier, if you will, for the United States. But after the end of the Cold War, uh, the funding for, and diplomacy, above all diplomacy, after the end of the Cold War, uh, all of these instruments moved to the back they, they were defunded in 1998. Congress dis disestablished the USIA. Um, they wanted to eliminate uh, the uh, US Agency for International Development. Clinton stopped them from doing that, but tucked it under the State Department. Uh, our strategic communications, again, became a very small part of the State Department. Its head doesn't even report to the Secretary of State. Uh, and uh, Foreign aid's always been the least popular uh, uh, thing in foreign policy for the American people. That, that uh, reached new lows in the, in the Clinton administration. So all these tools basically withered. And now we find, and, and the result was, we ended up with what I refer to in the book as a kind of a 19th century tricycle with a gigantic front wheel which represent, which was the Defense Department, and two tiny back wheels, which represented all the other instruments of power. And, and the result of that was, in my belief, that after the end of the Cold War, presidents more and more began to look to the military as, uh, as their instrument of first choice rather than a last resort. And so we ended up with an over-militarization of our foreign policy. As the saying goes, when the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And, and so we overused our military in no small part because all the other instruments were so weak. And I think that contributed to us ending up in 20 years of war. The military were given tasks they had no business trying to take on or being assigned. Uh, after the initial military victories, for example, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, so I think the whole theme here is that, that the tools that helped us succeed in the Cold War, we now have to realize are going to be essential for the long contest ahead of us uh, with both Russia, but especially with China. You've suggested in, in your remarks just now that, in a sense, a lot of the responsibility on the reductions was with Congress, especially when you're talking about USIA or USAID, and in a sense, the president was unable to adjust that. Is that a fair statement? Well, I think it's a fair statement, but I would also say most presidents didn't make much of an effort. One of the instruments that was significantly weakened was the Department of State uh, and our diplomacy. Now, I will give First president, uh, second President Bush credit, 
there were two periods during the Bush 43 administration when, when there were additional resources given to the State Department and additional people, but that was kind of a brief bump or a brief window in time. And, and so the result was that uh, over time, even diplomacy uh, was significantly weakened. I used, to, I used to joke with Condoleezza Rice that, uh, or she used to joke with me that I had more people in military bands than she had in the Foreign Service. We'll come back and talk more about the State Department in a few minutes. Uh, we have a, a question that I think you'll enjoy because it's from your good friend, Ambassador Robert Jordan. Uh, who served with such distinction as uh, George W. Bush's ambassador to Saudi Arabia. And he says, uh, Secretary Gates, you talk about great power competition and the need for American primacy. Why should Americans care about this? I think one place where American, successive American presidents since the end of the Cold War have fallen short is in educating the American people, in explaining to the American people why our international leadership is critical to our own future, why it is in our own self-interest. The fact is that uh, we cannot isolate ourselves from the rest of the world uh, in in the 21st century. We've seen that in the COVID virus. We've seen it in the economic circumstances. We've seen it climate change and a whole host of other issues. We can't just, our, our ocean barriers are totally irrelevant under those circumstances. The question is, I think, and where where we've fallen short is that because of the over-militarization that I described, many Americans have come to equate international leadership with being the global policeman, with the world policeman, and sending our young men and women uh, abroad Uh, to fight in conflicts that don't affect our national interest or they don't understand why they affect our national interest and for interminable periods of time. Uh, We've been at war for 20 years. So I think most Americans uh, have seen global leadership as both expensive in in both lives and treasure uh, as not necessarily serving American interests. And what our leaders need need to under, help the American people understand is that it's only through American leadership that we can shape the international environment to serve our interests. We have to work to make our alliances stronger. We have to reform our alliances. We have to reform and improve international institutions like the World Health Organization. But walking away from them simply gives the Chinese open field running. It's basically a gift to the Chinese to run these international institutions. So if we want to shape the international environment in a way that serves our interests, we have to be engaged, we have to be involved, and we have to do the hard work of trying to make them better. And I think this is both an effort uh, that presidents have not undertaken. It's also an effort to educate the American people on what needs to be done that has not been undertaken. One of the things that I particularly enjoyed about your book was how it was um, divided up. And so you really focused on 15 cases where the United States intervened. And for once, I'd like to start on a really optimistic note where it worked, and that was Colombia. And if you might briefly tell us about why Colombia was a success story. So Plan Colombia began in the Clinton administration 
uh, and, and really at first was focused on the counter-narcotics mission. And, and when, when the president of Colombia, Pastrana, proposed Plan Colombia for the first time to President Clinton, it actually started out as a social reform movement, uh, how to help the peasants in uh, Colombia find alternative employment so they, wouldn't, so they wouldn't do drugs or so they wouldn't grow drugs and, and you could weaken the, uh, the drug culture and the drug economy uh, in Colombia. That then morphed in, over time into a counter narcotics campaign and then ultimately into a counterinsurgency campaign against the FARC, uh, the, the radical leftist insurgent group in, in Colombia. At one point, the Defense Intelligence Agency basically said that Colombia was within a year or two of being a narco state, a criminal enterprise. And so this program, the reason it succeeded, in my view, was first of all, um, the American assistance program was to help the Colombians help themselves. Uh, the number of Americans on the ground in uniform uh, was uh, limited by Congress to initially 400 people and then ultimately no more than 800 people. So we were essentially helping the, the Colombians build their own capability to take on uh, the insurgents. It was also an effort that was dominated by the State Department. It was run by the State Department out of the embassy. And at one point, the embassy in Bogota was the biggest embassy in the world, biggest U.S. embassy in the world, later supplanted by Baghdad. So this was a State Department dominated effort by the United States. You had the support of the Congress uh, and, and this effort was able to be sustained through three to four different presidencies. So we had time to make it work. We had a, a strong local partner, particularly in President Uribe uh, of Colombia, who took the leadership. You had existing institutions in Colombia on which we could help them build and strengthen. And there was a social component to it. The, the military equipment, police equipment dominated, mainly because it's so expensive, but there was a significant percentage of the money that went into creating um, uh, training for judges, went into improving the legal system. Over, the, over a period of 10 years or so, the Justice Department trained 40,000 Colombian lawyers, uh, judges. <clears throat> so, so it was a civilian dominated effort. It was bipartisan. It lasted a protracted period of time. And the local partner was in the lead and was not corrupt and was dedicated to the rule of law. And we had and success and, and, and left. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. As you can imagine, we have a number of questions on China, but I'm going to ask the first one here. And it's you included in the book a quote from Sun Tzu's The Art of a War. And I quote, to subdue the enemy without fighting is the supreme excellence. 
So is China's strategy to replace the U.S., or are they trying to reshape, in a sense, the international order that we talk about so much for its own purposes? I think that they are uh, trying to reshape the international order for their own purposes. I think they uh, have the confidence that they are uh, the rising power and that we are a declining power. I think this has been made much more explicit uh, by Xi Jinping than by any of his predecessors. Uh, and in a way, I think it's a sort of historical uh, Chinese perspective of, of returning to the, its place as the, as the greatest power on earth that they held for a couple of thousand years. As I like to say, they had a couple of bad centuries, but in the context of Chinese history, that 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 period is over, and they are, and they expect to be treated with the deference and and the respect due a power that's as old as they are and as important as they are. Uh, I do think they intend to reshape the international environment. We see that in what they're trying to do in all of the institution, international institutions of the UN. Uh, and, and creating their own institutions, such as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, um, the Belt and Road Initiative, and all of these different things are aimed at, at, they, at them creating and shaping the international environment uh, to serve their interests. And also, talk a little bit about just their projection of force, because I was not aware that they had a military base in, in Pakistan and in one in their first, I guess, foreign base was in Djibouti. Um, how are we reacting to that and what, what, what's their objective? Well, I think, I think actually the power that's more concerned about that than we are is probably India at this point. But yes, they've created their first base in, uh, uh, in Djibouti. Uh, they're building uh, the port of Gwadar in Pakistan where they will have a uh, I think a 50-year lease. Uh, they may be looking at creating others as part of the Belt and Road. They already operate, uh, own and or operate something like three dozen major ports around the world. But it's especially in the South China Sea where we've seen them be the most aggressive uh, in terms of their military uh, exercises. And particularly, I would say in the last few months, uh, it's really built up. So you're seeing them uh, send their aircraft carrier around Taiwan, seeing their aircraft encroach on Taiwanese airspace, very aggressive actions against both Vietnam and Malaysia. Um, they're patrolling aggressively. You've seen the moves on Hong Kong uh, and the security law. So I think, I think partly because they think we are badly distracted by our economic crisis, by the uh, virus, uh, COVID crisis, and by our race crisis, uh, they see opportunities to be even more aggressive. And I think we're seeing a lot of that just even in recent days. And let me just highlight a number that you had in the, in the book about China's military budget has gone from 20 billion in 1998 to 170 billion in 2018. And as you said, that's just their official budget. Talk about what's happening in, in, in Hong Kong and what tools do we have in Hong Kong that we could use that wouldn't be punishment to the residents of Hong Kong that we have no wish to, 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 to punish. Well, I think that's where it gets really complicated, Jim, because it's very hard to, to I mean, the, the tool that we love the most is economic sanctions. And, and we use it all the time. 
uh, we, we throw sanctions at any country that looks at us cross-eyed at this point. It's gotten to the point where I'm sure many of your business uh, members can tell you it's, it's very hard for, for companies uh, to see their way through the welter of uh, sanctions we have on so many different countries so that they're not in violation of U.S. law. But, but I, think, I think our moral voice is important in defending the people of Hong Kong in trying, and I think we can try and deter the Chinese from um, actually applying the law that has been passed uh, that would result in the jailing of, uh, uh, of protesters and, and perhaps taking them back to China. Uh, and, and I think there we can threaten additional economic sanctions against China should they apply the law but they would be applied against China, not against Hong Kong. I, I, there's a lot of legislation in the Congress that would change the, the protected nature of Hong Kong in terms of our laws and their economic activity. I, I think that's guaranteed to hurt the Hong Kongers more than it hurts the Chinese. And so my view would be uh, our, our moral voice, but also letting it be cl being clear with the Chinese that if they actually try to apply that law, uh, that there would be an economic uh, consequence for them. This is one of those places where having allies and friends would help because if, all, if a variety of nations, if the Europeans and the Australians and the Indians and others joined us in warning the Chinese about the consequences of moving on Hong Kong, it would have a far more powerful uh, impact on the Chinese than us doing it alone. So uh, Michael D says that he, uh, one of our members, he was the first CEO, CFO of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And he believes that it was a you know, tragic mistake for us to not be involved in some of these alliances. In your view, how serious of a mistake was it for us not to be in the TPP? Uh, I, think, I think this is a place where we have bipartisan mistakes. I think President Obama made a terrible mistake in not joining the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. That bank is funding a number of the projects uh, in Belt and Road, and it actually, our membership might have given us some voice in the selection of those projects in terms of making them more economically viable and so on. It might even have opened some opportunities for American companies, uh, but we're out. All of our allies went in, uh, and I think the bank now has over, uh, well over 100 um, member, member nations. So that was Obama's mistake. I think President Trump's mistake was walking away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Again, the Chinese love to negotiate bilaterally because with most countries, they are in a position to intimidate the partner. When you can get 11 nations, 11 Asian or Pacific Rim nations together, and speak as one voice to the Chinese, particularly if they were led by the United States, it has an impact that any single country acting alone, including the United States, won't have. So I think that it was a, a, it was a really big mistake uh, not to uh, continue to move forward with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And now, irony of ironies, the Chinese have inquired about being able to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So, so uh, they would be in and, and we would be out. Deborah Schultz says, don't forget to ask him about Taiwan. And, and, and I would add to that, and 
we, we certainly don't want to draw a red line because that hasn't helped us, but what are our options? Well, I think I, I, the Clinton administration once described their policy toward Taiwan as, uh, as uh, strategic ambiguity. I, I, think, I think ambiguity is the last thing that we, uh, that we want uh, when it comes to Taiwan because she feels, President Xi feels especially strongly about wanting to have Hong Kong and Taiwan reincorporated into China while he is president. So I think we need to be very clear, first of all, to the Taiwanese, that if they do something provocative, such as declare independence, they're on their own. On the other hand, we need to be very clear to the Chinese that absent that kind of a declaration, absent of that kind of a provocation, if they try to do anything with respect to China, uh, with respect to Taiwan, we will come to Taiwan's defense and they should be under no illusions. Let's talk, go back to the State Department. I'm not sure if everyone knows that the story about you met with uh, President-elect uh, Trump and suggested that uh, our Dallas resident, Rex Tillerson, be considered to be Secretary of State. Uh, I suspect he's forgiven you, but actually- Yeah, I think he's, he's, I think he's, I think Rex is talking to me again. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, uh, Mr. Tillerson, Secretary Tillerson, really came into the State Department with the idea to reform it. And he was unsuccessful, and in a, in a very real sense, the building turned against him. What mistakes did, did he make in trying to change the, the, the culture of the State Department? And how should someone else be more successful? Because throughout your book, you do state and, 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 and characterize the State Department as being overly bureaucratic, antiquated, and it needs changes. Yeah, and it's a... Um... Um, it, it, it stifles creativity. Uh, it's not bold. Um, and so I make, I make the argument in the book that state needs to be reformed and restructured. And when they've done that, then given more people and more money. Uh, and I argue that a reformed State Department should be the hub of all non-military U.S. Uh, instruments of foreign policy. Uh, an example of this was another success, which was President Bush 43's uh, PEPFAR initiative, the HIV AIDS uh, initiative, in which he put, he put responsibility for carrying that policy out in the State Department, but he empowered the coordinator of uh, the initiative to control the budgets and the programs of all the other agencies in the government to work this problem together. So you had one person in the State Department who had budgetary authority and programmatic authority that brought the entire government together. It's one of the few instances you can point to of a genuine whole of government effort. And I believe the State Department ought to be the hub for other kinds of activities along those lines, but it does need to be reformed. I think that the challenge facing the reformer in the State Department is that it that that person not only has to be empowered by the president who shares that agenda but also have the support of the Congress. The Congress is very protective of the bureaucracies. Each of the committees of Congress is very protective 
of the bureaucracies that come under uh, their supervision or their oversight. And, and the committees in the Congress tend to be just as conservative as the bureaucracies somebody may want to be tr trying to uh, fix. I ran into that all the time with the Defense Department. You know, if I tried to cut, a pro no matter how anti-defense spending a member of Congress might be, God forbid that I should try and cut one single contract or one single job in his or her congressional district. So the State Department doesn't have that kind of uh, congressional intrusiveness and support, if you will, but, but it does face, uh, it, it does have very conservative and cautious oversight committees. So any, any attempt to reform the government in terms of national security is going to have to require, first of all, I think a high level agreement between the president and the congressional leadership that this is an idea whose time has come and that then empowers the people at the cabinet level to work with the Congress in figuring out how to change these institutions and bring them up to date. This is not something a single reformer can do coming in at the top uh, and, and essentially acting alone. It has to be done in cooperation with the White House and, and with the Congress. And Tillerson brought in largely outsiders. Well, on behalf of nearly a thousand people who have been listening to you today, thank you so much for spending time with us. In fact, Gideon Rose, uh, the editor of Foreign Affairs, had a review that must have made you very happy in the New York Times. Gideon wrote, Gates says what he thinks and refuses to pull his punches. And as a result, the book offers in one volume the most accurate record available of recent American security policy and the most sensible guide to what should come next. It's been wonderful spending the hour with you, sir. Have a great evening. And Dr. Gates, we look forward to seeing your book, number one Thank on you. the New York Times bestseller list. Thank you, Jim.